Each man then took his post at their retire. So then these numerous hosts began to fire. The cannon on each side did roar like thunder, and youths in all their pride were torn asunder. Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And we have come to it. We have we finally can begin looking at Montcalm and Wolf by Francis Parkman, the final volume of Parkman's life's work, uh, the history of France and England in North America, particularly the, for the history of the French in, in North America. But in this volume, we get a little bit more of the history of the English. Uh, now, the story of this book um, is the story of the Seven Years' War in North America and the story of the fall of Quebec and therefore the fall of, of French North America. And uh, it sets up a couple things. It sets up, of course, Parkman's first work of history, uh, The Conspiracy of Pontiac, which we already looked at. And it also sets up uh, the American Revolution in a lot of ways. If you've ever taken a U.S. history course, you know how important the French and Indian War or the Seven Years' War uh, was in setting up the, the, you know, the, the political issues that are going to lead to the American Revolution. So um, this book's a lot of fun. It's not my favorite in the series, but it is epic and titanic and, and, and rather huge. It's 600 pages. It's by far the largest of, of the books that uh, Parkman wrote, and it's the largest uh, in this series. Uh, the Conspiracy of Pontiac gives it a run for its money, a little bit, but uh, definitely this is a, a, a bulkier work. Um, it's a good, if you have his series on your desk, Montcalm and Wolf will, find a, will form a nice bookend to it, just in its size. So this was originally published in 1884. Um, he started writing this right after the publication of uh, Count Frontenac, the Count Frontenac book, which is book five in the series. So it took him seven years to, to write this book. Um, and later on, after he published Montcalm and Wolf, he started writing the book we already looked at, A Half Century of Conflict, which in some ways is the most forgettable of the books, but I have, I, I've, I've come to appreciate a little bit A uh, Half Century of Conflict for some of the, the ramifications of his story for how we understand and look at modern warfare, modern empires, and, and, and the history of those things. So anyways, that's uh, so for the next six episodes, as we finish up this series on Francis Parkman Jr., we'll be untangling the story of Montcalm and Wolfe and the story of the fall of, of Quebec, the ups and downs of the fortunes of the English in, in the Seven Years' War, and, and we'll see what he has to say about all this stuff. So anyways, so the first... I'm going to break this up into 100-page sections, of course. Um, the first episode will cover the introduction and the first four chapters, which um, really just gives us the story of the background a little bit. It gives us the story of Acadia, 1710 to 1754, which we already sort of know because that was described in some detail in the previous book. Um, this, but there's some new stuff here, especially from the English point of view. 
So anyways, let's jump into it. So in Parkman's introduction, he starts by talking about the significance of the Seven Years' War in U.S. history and in world history. So here's how he starts it, uh, quote, It is in the nature of great events to obscure the great events that came before them. The Seven Years' War in Europe is seen but dimly through revolutionary convulsions and Napoleonic tempests. And the same contrast in America is half lost to sight behind the storm clouds of the War of Independence. Few at this day see the momentous issues involved in it or the greatness of the danger that, that it averted. The strife that armed all the civilized world began here. Such was the complication of political interests, said Voltaire, that the cannon shot fired in America could be the signal that set Europe in a blaze. Not quite. It was not a cannon shot, but a volley from a hunting piece of a few backwoodsmen commanded by young Virginian youth, George Washington. So what he says here, obviously, is this is the beginning of the revolutionary age in, in Europe and, and the Atlantic. So if you want to tell the story of the Revolutionary Atlantic, you don't start with Napoleon or you don't start with the Bastille or the Estates General or even the American Revolution. You have to start in 1950, oh, sorry, 17, 1754 with the first fighting of the French and Indian War um, going on. I think we should, we should look at this whole introduction because it's all pretty good. Uh, next paragraph. To us of this day, the result of the American part of the war seems a foregone conclusion. It was far from being so and very far from being so regarded by our forefathers. The numerical superiority of the British colonies was offset by organic weakness, weakness fatal to vigorous and united action. Nor at the onset did they or the mother country aim at conquering Canada, but only at pushing back her boundaries. Canada, using the name of it in its restricted sense, was a position of great strength. And even when her dependencies were overcome, she could hold her own against a force far superior. Armies could reach her by only three routes. The St. Lawrence on the east, the upper St. Lawrence on the west, and Lake Champlain on the south. The first access was guarded by a fortress almost impenetrable by nature, and the second by a long series of dangerous rapids, while the third offered a series of pointy essays to defend. During the same war, Frederick of Prague held his ground triumphantly against greater odds, though his kingdom was open on all sides to attack. So what we learn here is, as the war began, the British basically saw it as yet another North American extension of these European wars, like Queen Anne's War and King George's War and, and all those. And therefore, really, the fighting was originally conceived of on the margins. It was only a later decision to go all in and try to uh, remove the French. Also, despite the numerical advantage of, of Britain, Parkman here insists this war could have gone either way. And especially when we look at the early years of the war, it certainly seemed it would be going uh, the other way. Uh, next paragraph in the introduction. It was the fatuity of Louis XV and his pompadour that made the conquest of Canada possible. Had they not broken the traditionalist policy of France, allied themselves to Austria, her ancient enemy, and plunged needlessly into the European war, the whole force of the kingdom would have been turned from the first to the humbling of England and the defense of the French colonies. The French soldiers left dead in the inglorious continental battlefield could have saved Canada and perhaps made good her claim on the vast territories of the West. So that reminds us that we are talking about a global war, um, the Seven Years' War, uh, uh, started as another war between Austria and Prussia. Um, but pr unlike the war that was just ended 10 years earlier, the, the War of the Austrian Secession, alliances shifted. Britain began to support um, Prussia and France began to support Austria. And so when Prussia um, ultimately won that war, you know, and England won their, their war against France in North America. So the argument here is had it not been a global war, 
France could have maybe held its own. I'm not sure there would have been a, a war quite in the same degree in North America had there not been um, this, the Seven Years' War. Uh, you know, they did have kind of separate causes and separate root issues, but they were related. All right, next. But there were other contingencies. The possession of Canada was a question of diplomacy as well as of war. If England conquered her, she might restore her, as she had lately restored Cape Breton. Had she had an interest in keeping France alive on the American continent, more than one clear eye saw in the middle of the last century that the subjugation of Canada would lead to a revolt of the British colonies. So long as an active and enterprising enemy threatened their borders, they could not break with the mother country because they needed her help. And if the arms of France had prepared, had prospered in another hemisphere, if she had gained in Europe or Asia territories with which to buy back what she had lost in America, then in all likely Canada would have passed into her hands. Um, so this is again talking about the contingency of all. It took the French total defeat in the Seven Years' War on all fronts that gave the English the power to demand Canada. Um, so yeah, and also the setting up of the American Revolution, not just the financial strain on the British Empire that was hoped to be paid for with direct taxes on the colonies, but also the, the fact that once the enemy was gone, there was no need to rely on Britain to, to defend themselves, right, except, except from Indians. <clears throat> ah, next paragraph. Quote, the most momentous and far-reaching questions ever brought to issue on this continent was, shall France remain here or shall she not? If by diplomacy or war she had preserved but a half or less than a half of her American possessions, then a barrier would have been set to spread of the English-speaking races. There would have been no revolutionary war, and for a long time, at least, no independence. It was not a question of scanty population strung along the bank of the St. Lawrence. It was, or under a government of any worth, it would have been a question of the armies and generals of France. America owes much of her imbecility of Louis the owes much to the imbecility of Louis the Fifteenth and the ambitious vanity and personal dislikes of his mistress. The Seven Years' War made England what it is. It crippled the commerce of her rival, ruined France in two continents, and blighted her as a colonial power. It gave England the control of the seas and mastery of North America and India, and made her the first of commercial nations and prepared the ever-vast colonial globe that had planted New Englands in every quarter of the globe. Sorry, I read that wrong. And prepared that vast colonial system that has planted New Englands in every quarter of the globe. And while it made England what she is, it supplied to the United States the indisposable condition of it, their greatness, if not their national existence. Before entering out of the story of the Great Contest, we will look at both parties to it on both sides of the Atlantic. So that's it. That's a really great introduction that summarizes what's at stake, what the consequences of the Seven Years' War in North America was for American independence, for the rise of Great Britain as a world power, and the decline of France. So we've already seen the consequences of this for the Native American people in our look at the conspiracy of Pontiac. So let's, uh, let's go more quickly through, through chapters one through four. So uh, chapter one is called The Combatants, and it looks at basically the different institutions and the different um, societies in French North America versus British North America. And through this, Parkman's able to kind of lay out, once again, his overall thesis, which is the different fates of, of the French and the British, the different, you know, our, our institutional and, and based in political culture. Um, English liberties, English diversity, uh, English settlement versus a French system based on trade, based on absolutism, 
based on on the string of forts, of course. But um, actually, this chapter is the first time we get a really, really in-depth look at the British. There were a few glimpses here and there, like in the Count, uh, well, no, in the old regime in, in Canada, we got a little bit about the Puritans. We, we get a, him talking about the Puritans once in a while. We get him talking about New England a bit, some of the politics of New York, the, the diplomacy with the Indians in New York, and the conflicts in the, in the context of, of you know, King George's War, Queen Anne's War. But it's always been on the side of his story, which is about the French. But here he starts to move his story to, to England. And this is as he's preparing to tell the story of the rise of, of Great Britain and its victory over New France. He starts to shift to, to tell us more of the perspective of, of the English. But this is the first book in the series that really sort of balances the English and the French story in any significant degree. So it does kind of stand out. Um, now I guess the if you take... Uh, Pontiac's conspiracy as a coda to this series. That one also looks mostly at the British perspective, obviously, because that was a war between the Indians of the Ohio Valley and the and the British. Um, so again, just you know, what he says here is these are deep cultural and political institutional differences between the two. Um, you know, but not everything's good. I mean, he's still. For, for England. It's not like inevitable. He still insists that the French, although different, are powerful and they have a position that's quite domineering. It would take a great force of will, immense resources to finally dislodge France from her, her position, however faulty it might be at its, at its kind of institutional base. Um, and he does kind of criticize a little bit uh, the, the British political system that emerged in the 17th century, kind of the Whig, Tory, bickering, the... Um, some of the the class conflicts. I mean, he even has he has a really interesting shout out here to to um, to class. Very very subtle. It's not a concern thing that really concerns Parkman very much. But listen to this: um, the humbler clergy were thought sometimes with reason to be no fit company of gentlemen, and company parsons strength their ale in the squire's kitchen. The passage wagons spent the better part of a fortnight in creeping from London to York. Travelers carried pistols against footpaths and mounted highwaymen. Dick Turpin and Jack Shepard were popular heroes. Tyburn counted its victims by scores, and as yet, no Howard had appeared to reform the inhuman abominations of the prisons. So I'll just leave that at that. If you don't know who Jack Shepard are or Dick Turpin, um, I urge you to read uh, Peter Leinbaugh's book, um, The London Hanged, which has a great chapter about Jack Shepard, who was a popular folk hero in London. Largely, he eventually was executed at Tyburn. But he broke out of Newgate Prison a number of times and became a, a, a folk hero for doing that. Um, but that's a great book. The London Hang is one of the best works of history I have, I have ever read. Spy American. I guess I could justify doing that book in this podcast series if I ever break free of the Library of America. So he gives the big picture of England and its problems. Also, it disarmed its... It, it basically shut down its military. So despite the numerical superiority in terms of population, didn't really have, basically they were a, a parity in terms of military. Um, now he puts a lot of blame on the court politics of Louis XV, so the House of Bourbon and its decline, um, despite being one of the dominant powers in Europe, holding the thrones of France, Spain, and Naples, the Bourbons were, um, were really in some kind of decadent decline, according to Parkman. Um, 
But it's still its peak. It's still its peak of the Bourbon Monarch. And I guess everything has its peak before its decline, right? Um, just that's almost mathematical. Uh, the triumph of the Bourbon Monarchy was complete. The government had become one of the great machines for centralized administration with the king at its head, though the king who neither could nor would direct it. All strife was over between the crowd and the nobles. Feudalism was robbed of its vitality and left with the mere image of its former self, with nothing alive but its abuses, its caste privileges, its exactions, its pride and vanity, its power to vex and oppress. In England, the nobility were a living part of the nation. And if they had privileges, they paid for them by constant service to the state. In France, they had no political life, were separated from the people by sharp lines of demarcation. From warrior chiefs, they had changed to courtiers, end quote. Um, and then this leads him to go in to talk about Versailles, which even that, he says, is, was beginning to lose its, its um, energy and its vitality, whatever vitality Versailles may have once had, it was losing that as well. So absolutism is sort of, it was achieved, um, he argues, but it's sort of a political dead end, and it didn't prepare France for the struggles of, of a more modern, modern age. So he, can, he contrasts these different powers in Europe, giving a few things to say about Austria, Germany, and Russia, other combatants in the Seven Years' War. And then he talks about the American combatants. Um, you know, basically Canada, he says, is basically well described in his other books. So he spends his time talking about the competing claims. This is something he set up actually in the previous book, although it was written later. You know, how these claims were kind of never really resolved. These wars, these three series of wars that were, a series of three wars that were fought before, never really resolved. Like, you know, who should have Acadia? Who controls the Ohio Valley? Who, you know, where are these borders? And, you know, and who has the proper claim? Both had, could root their claims in various explorations and in relations with Indians and things like that. So it was all a mess. And I think just like diplomatically, you know, it, it kind of had to be resolved with an all or nothing struggle, right? And, th and that's why he says, like, in the introduction, had the French had, like, one in India or something and could have said, well, we'll give up India if you let us keep Canada. It would have, you know, kept these struggles and conflicts and ambiguities in the, in the Americas, uh, you know, well past the Seven Years' War. Um, then he goes through the colonies and he gives a kind of a general survey of the 13 British colonies beginning in New England and its, its culture, its major figures, focusing on Edwards and Ben Franklin. Uh, we got New York um, and, and Virginia. And, and when he talks about Virginia, he finally, finally has something to say about slavery and class and I, uh, in the British colonies. He almost says nothing about slavery throughout this massive work um, unless a slave shows up in the story which they do occasionally he has almost nothing interesting to say about slavery and its role in the rise of, of the British colonies but finally he does um, and he kind of show, paints Virginia to be this um, kind of mixture of a democratic spirit with like an arist arist aristocratic longing Quote, New England had the native literature much more, more than respectable under the circumstances, while Virginia had none. Numerous industries, while Virginia was all agriculture. With but a single crop, a homogenous society and a democratic spirit, while her rival was an aristocracy. Virginian society was deeply stratified. On the lowest level were the Negro slaves, nearly as numerous as all the rest together. 
Next, the indentured servants and the poor whites of low origin, good humored, but boisterous and sometimes vicious. Next, the small and despised class of tradespeople and mechanics. Next, the farmers and lesser planters who are mainly of good English stock and who merge insensibly into the ruling class of the great landowners. It was by these last who represented the colony and made the laws." Unquote. And what I'm thinking here is he, he really wants to make this contrast between like absolutism and some kind of liberty when you're looking at the British North American colonies versus the French. But the reality is, to me it seems quite clearly different. The reality is England, the English colonies, British colonies were very diverse. And even if you say New England by the mid 18th century had a more democratic culture and spirit, you can't say that for all of the South, which really is an aristocracy, especially Virginia. Um, so he kind of contradicts himself here a little bit, um, but at least he acknowledges the reality of aristocracy in, in the British. Um, well, I guess what, what, what you don't see, you see it maybe in aristocracy, but you don't see absolutism. That's something that was never really achieved. Quote, in Canada, there's no popular legislature to embarrass the central power. The people like the army obeyed the world of command and military advantage beyond all price. So this is a really useful chapter is summarizing what he sees as the chief uh, bifurcations in, the, in American society in the middle of the 18th century. So the next chapter uh, is uh, Celeron de Bienville, uh, 1749 to 1752. And this chapter deals with the story of Celeron de Bienville, who's an explorer who was sent to the Ohio Valley to kind of lay out, a, strengthen French claims in the territory um, by establishing different relations with Indians, putting up uh, they put up tin plates to kind of claim certain territory as as French. Um, it, you know, it offended some Indians, uh, it seems. So that maybe was counterproductive. But the goal was essentially to to strengthen French claims in the Ohio Valley area. You know, no, in the in the immediate uh, prelude, actually, in the in the years right after King George's War, this this took place. Um, and we're reminded here of the failure of the Peace of Aix-la-Chapelle, which was the treaty that ended the War of the Austrian Secession, at least as far as North America was concerned. It was a failed treaty because it didn't really resolve any of these border issues. It just restored the old pre-war borders in, in North America. Yes, France lost Louisburg, Louisburg a major port, um, but they got it back in exchange for some Indian territory. So, quote, the treaty had done nothing to settle the vexed question of boundaries between France and her rival. It had but stayed off the inevitable conflict. Meanwhile, the English traders were crossing the mountains from Pennsylvania and Virginia, poaching on the domain which France claimed as hers, ruining the French fur trade and seducing the Indian allies of Canada and stirring them up against her. Worse still, the English land speculators were beginning to follow. Something must be done and promptly to drive back the intruders. So that's what this uh, chapter is about, this effort to strengthen French relations with Indians and to uh, create a stronger um, position in France, at least in terms of, of le legitimate, defendable, and defensible claims. Now, there's, a, there's kind of some geopolitical, geographical logic here in 
this goal too because you had a very very strong clear French position in Louisiana and a strong one in Quebec and in between you had a string of forts but kind of dubious claims and, and positions so the goal here is to try to solidify the, the line of communication between these two two things all right to, you know which is the whole kind of French strategy here is to contain the English you know, within certain boundaries the problem is, of course, the French didn't really make good on many of their claims in this huge territory. And it's hard to imagine how they could have done that, uh, just given the size of this region. You know, these claims are largely imaginary. These are places ruled by Indian societies that have their own pol political systems and things. But anyways, overall, this chapter does a good job of setting up the difficulties of of just these borders. And, and that's gonna be the root cause of the French and Indian War outside of the Seven Years War and, and France and England going to war over that stuff. It was just these claims were overlapping and difficult to prove at a time when English settlers and speculators were going into the West, squatting essentially on land that the French claimed were theirs. Now, France had one big advantage here and he, Parkman sort of ends the chapter with this, saying, in the heterogeneous structure of the British colonies, their clashing interests, their internal disputes, and the misplaced economy of Pennywise and short-sighted assemblymen lay the hope of France. The rulers of Canada knew the vast numerical preponderance of her rivals, but with their centralized organization, they felt themselves more than a match for any one English colony alone. They hoped to wage war under the guise of peace and to deal with the enemy in detail. Um, so that's the, the strategy, but that's that goal and these this work to solidify that frontier is what's going to be the root cause of the conflict. And that brings us into chapter three, conflict for the West, 1749 to 1753. The war begins, of course, in 1754. Um, so this uh, chapter deals more with the French efforts to lure the Iroquois and to establish some alliances with the Iroquois and, and win them over. So it's, it's actually worthwhile um, looking at the, the alliance structure during, the, during this war. Um, so on the British side, you had the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, which ended up siding mostly with the, the, in this case, pretty much completely with the British, the Wyandots, the Catawaba, the Cherokee, and the, the Mingo. Um, among the French, they were able to get pretty much all these other Algonquin groups, like the Wabanaki, the Abenaki, the Micmacs, um, Lenape, Ojibwa, Ottawa, Shawnee, um, and the, the Detroit Wyandots. Um, so that was the how the alliances sh uh, shook out. But this, this chapter of the conflict of the West is mostly about how the different sides try to, you know, acquire the help and get the alliances with these various um, Indians. Um, for instance, we have him writing here, without doubt, the English traders spared no pains to gain over the Indians by fair means or foul, sold them goods at low rate, made ample gifts and gave gunpowder for the asking. St. Onga, who commanded at Venice, wrote that the storm would soon burst on the head of the French. Jonquier reported that all of the Ohio Indians sided with the English. Um, so that's it. Now, we get another kind of interesting story here, and that's the story of Francois Piquet, who is kind of seen as uh, was a missionary, another French missionary to the Iroquois. 
uh, known as the Apostle of, of the Iroquois. Um, now, despite his popularity and his, his, some, the success he had among the Iroquois, the Iroquois did not uh, side with the French this time and did not remain neutral either. All right, and the last chapter I want to talk about is, is, is uh, the Conflict for Acadia, 1710 to 1754. And a lot of this, of course, has been covered in A Half Century of Conflict. It covers the same years as that, um, that book, more or less. Um, but so, so it's a, mostly a review of the things we've been talking about, long-standing issues in Acadia. One, the, the division of Acadia since the Peace of Utrecht, between part of it being ruled by Britain, part of it by France, and much of it disputed. Um, the handover of Louisbourg during King George's War, and then the large number of French settlers who still lived there. Um, and so French plans really boil down to attempting to, to take back Acadia, or at least encourage the French subjects, or the French-speaking people in Acadia who are now British subjects, to resist taking oaths of loyalty, to resist, you know, to remain a force that could be belligerent towards the English. Um, for instance, uh, he writes, quote, the refusal of the Acadians to take the required oath was not wholly spontaneous, but was mainly due to influence from without. The French officials of Cape Breton and Isle of St. John, now Prince Edward Island, exerted themselves to the utmost, chiefly through the agency of the priests, to excite the people to refuse any oath that should commit them fully to British allegiance. At the same time, means were used to induce them to migrate to the neighboring islands under French rule, end quote. So really try to get these French... Um, speakers to stay under the French flag by moving to French parts of Acadia or to encourage them just to, re to reject entirely British uh, loyalty oaths. And into this, we get really the first mention of the plans to begin to remove the Acadians. It's not going to happen until a little bit later, but, um, you know, the problem was you got a treaty that says you got to give these French speakers the right to worship Catholicism, to have certain liberties, you know, that's just, that was in the treaty, and yet they were often like a, a threat to, to British rule there. Uh, so the solution ends up becoming as to removing them to French territories, um, not other parts of Acadia where they could be threatening to them, but all the way to eventually Louisiana. Now into this we get the Governor Cornwallis, not to be confused with the General of the American Independence War and later governor of India. This man was named Edward Cornwallis and he was the governor of Nova Scotia, which is, you know, British Acadia from 1749 to 1752. Later on was the governor of Gibraltar. Um, so his, uh, he is the one who's trying to deal with these French people, try to get them to sign the loyalty oaths. And that's what a lot of this chapter dwells on. So I think that's good for now. I think we've done a lot. We've, we've covered the first four chapters of this book and set up the introduction. Um, the next episode, we'll look at um, four more chapters, I guess. Yeah, these are long chapters, um, which deals with the actual outbreak of, of war. So it'll be the Washington and Braddock um, campaigns and then the removal of the Acadians. That's the stuff that's on the docket for, for the next episode. So um, 
that's going to be it for now. Um, let me know if you have any questions or thoughts about the material I, I covered here, about Francis Parkman in general. We're coming near the end of this series, um, five more episodes. So I look forward to finishing this, this long quest um, in the coming weeks. So thanks as always for listening, and I will see you Began to break, their ranks were flying. Brave wolf then seemed to wake as he lay dying. He lifted up his head while the guns did rattle, and to his army said, How goes the battle? Is a decamp